Well, it's great to see all of you here. Uh, I want to start by sharing a quote I read this week from Oscar Wilde, the poet and the writer. Wilde wrote this, the gods, lowercase g gods, have two ways of dealing harshly with us. The first is to deny us our dreams, and the second is to grant them. The first is to deny us our dreams, and the second is to grant them. What does he mean? God's plural, clearly he's operating with a little different theology than some of us may be. But to explain this, go back to your earliest dream of success. What did you think it meant to be successful? When you were growing up, when your parents or whoever raised you, your grandparents maybe were teaching you about, this is what a successful person looks like. This is what a good life looks like. What did that entail? What kind of job maybe did you dream about having? Did you want to grow up and become a doctor? or a firefighter? Be somebody courageous? Did you want to be a soccer star? My son told me the other day, he's six, that he wants to play center field for the Mariners. That's a very specific dream of success, right? Uh, When I was in high school, my dream of success was becoming a filmmaker. Uh, I've really gotten into movies. I loved kind of the great uh, films of the generation before mine. So Stanley Kubrick and all these different names. I thought if I could have the coolest job in the world, it would be to be a filmmaker. I was reading a story this week about someone who did get their dream job, a businessman. He was in a company that had gone through a big reorganization. Stop me if you've heard this story before. And he got the job. He got like the corner office, the one that he had wanted forever. He got the big name played, the title, and of course the salary bump that goes along with it. His family, he had a wife and two little kids. They started to see him less and less. The job required more hours, sometimes 60, sometimes 70, 80 hours a week. And at first they didn't mind. They had more money to spend. They could do that home remodel that they've been putting off. But of course, as the notorious B.I.G. once told us, more money, more problems. There was more arguments. There was more disagreement. The man kept working, though, because what are you going to do? You got to go to work. Like, you got to show up. And then he got kind of sick. He got this cold that wouldn't go away. I think we've all experienced this in the damp northwest winter, right? Like, you just can't kick it. But he knew that it wasn't just that he was sick. He knew there was more stress. His body wasn't as able to really fight off this illness. And so he tried to put it off, and he stayed home for a couple days, and it just kept hanging around. And so that didn't leave him feeling very good. He was getting into more fights. He was stressed out. And then all of a sudden, uh, someone in his family, actually his brother, passed away very suddenly, very out of the blue, didn't see it coming at all. And so he's kind of in this tailspin. He's sick, he's stressed, his family life's a wreck, he's lost his brother, and so he goes to see a counselor. And this book that I'm reading was written by his counselor. I'm hoping he got permission to share the story. And this man shared an image that I want to share with us, and this is going to be kind of our framing image for the morning. We'll have different images to think about, but if you want to gather around an image right now, it's a frozen lake. Now, I grew up in Texas. I have no idea what a frozen lake looks like. But if you grew up in the Midwest, if you grew up in Alaska, like, you're like, yeah, I know what this looks like. This man said this, I feel as if my whole life is built on a frozen lake. We all go out to do our activities. We work on the house. We play golf. We entertain. We have our fights. I put in long hours at work, and I think I'm doing well. I think I'm doing well. And then every once in a while, I stop and I just look down and I go, this ice that I'm standing on, is it melting? Is it coming down? Was that a crack that I heard? And then I go on and I try to forget about the ice. I try to think, man, that, that, it's fine. It'll take care of itself. But then I'm going, no, this ice looks really, really thin. What do I do? What am I supposed to do right now? 
If you got your dream job, how's that going for you? If you got your dream house, your dream spouse, how's that going for you? Are we stopping to look at the cracks in the ice often? Are we hearing the sound of those cracks? We all live on the ice. I think it's one of the premises we can adopt this morning. But we like to think that we've got the ice under control. We like to think that we can sort of affect the change, pull those cracks back. We've got it under control. It's all good. But then something, like what this man experiences, comes up. You have an illness. There's a death in the family. You go through a major job change. If you're a parent, you have a kid who's in crisis. And all of a sudden, you're looking down at your feet again. You're going, I'm back on the ice. I never left the ice. Now, the message of the gospel is not get away from the ice. The message of the gospel is we actually can live on the ice. It's not to run away from our problems. It's not to say, nope, Jesus has me and none of the rest of the things that are going on in my life or in the world matter. What we're going to be driving at toward the rest of our time together today is how do we live on the ice? You want to write that down as kind of the framing question for today. How do I live on the ice? The goal is not to get off of it, but rather above it. A commentator that I read this week about this particular chapter of Romans said, one of the things God does for us is when he keeps his promises. That's the main theme today. God always keeps his promises. When he does that, he holds us up. Picture putting your arms underneath a little kid and just holding that kid up. That is what God does when he keeps his promises. And Bethany, God always keeps his promises. Will you say that with me? God always keeps his promises. I'm not kidding. We're going to see how true it is as we look through the scriptures. Why are we looking at this? We're looking at this because we're preaching through Romans. This is Romans 3. There's a ton of stuff related to this in here. We're also preaching on this because this is a tremendous challenge. Maybe one of the biggest challenges I think that especially faces people on the east side. Why? We got the dream. You're here because you got a dream job. You get to live in a dream neighborhood. Your kids get to go to dream schools. You got the dream, Bethany. You got it. How's that dream? How's the ice? Maybe you don't have your dream job. You're like, dude, you don't know my job. Are you kidding? My job's a nightmare. Forget what you're saying about a dream. Fine. You're still standing on the ice. How's that feel? How do you want to live on the ice? Do you want to live with the promises of God holding you, giving you perspective, giving you the healing and the blessing that you need to live on the ice? Or do you want to pretend like it's not there? Let's see if we can't live in such a way where our confidence, our way forward, that's the theme of our sermon series. What's the way forward? The way forward today is through God's promises. And we're going to look at three different headings for this. Brokenness, God's righteousness, and our new identity. These are all outlined in your bulletin. If you want to turn there now, the presumption is that you could take notes because there'll be things that being said that would be worth writing down. If you'd like to do that, go right ahead. First premise is, is that we are broken. The image that uh, kind of unites this section for us, if you want to kind of get your head around a picture, is a mirror. I'll explain what that means in a minute. So let's start by talking about sin and brokenness because everybody loves to start by talking about that, right? Like the coffee's kicking in, like here we go. The Apostle Paul has written this letter to the church in Rome, and he spent the first two chapters outlining some pretty clear ways that people have experienced brokenness, that they've experienced the ways that the world leaves us hanging and fallen short. And the reason he's doing this in part is to set up how good the rest of the story is. He's got to show us how sick we are to show us how well the gospel can make us and make our world. And Paul knew this personally. Right? Many of you may have grown up around church. You may know this story. But Paul is a recovering zealot. 
He is someone who has spent so much of his adult life chasing after people that he thought were wrong and being on his high horse and trying to beat people down. And then all of a sudden, he is knocked into a new place in life. He relinquishes his old identity, all that stuff that he used to be about, the violence and the persecution. He lets it all go, and he steps into this new way of life where God is using his incredible intellect, his incredible skills for rhetoric for something else. After his conversion, Paul recognized that the people he served, the people he was a part of, the the Jews, the nation of Israel, they were just as lost as anybody else. He thought he had it all together. He thought we've got the way to fly and everybody else is going to catch up to us someday. Anybody else relate to that? Like all the rest of you will catch up to me someday. The church in Rome though was different. He served this church that was composed of both Gentiles and Jews. So people who knew the Hebrew scriptures, knew the Old Testament and people who could not find the first page of the Bible if you paid them. These people were together in fellowship. It was a diverse church. So how do you bring a diverse group of people together in a church? You teach them the truth. And what he was teaching them was, chapters 1 and 2 of Romans, there are consequences to living outside of the ways of God. God knows the good ways. He is the good judge. He is the one that is able to see everything clearly. We can't. And he leads us into his good ways. But when we choose something apart from that, there are things that we will reap because of that. There are consequences to our actions. That's kind of Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 3, he starts to flesh that argument out even more by using the Hebrew scriptures. There's a passage in here that I invite us to read together. Turn with me to Romans 3. And I'll just read the first part of this because it's, it's a pretty searing indictment. Paul's been talking earlier in chapter 3 about how there's no advantage to being a Jew, there's no advantage to being a Gentile, because everybody's united by this thing. And then he finally says what the thing is, starting in verse 9. I'm going to read verses 9 through 13 for us. Paul says, What then? Are we any better off? We the Jews? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, everybody, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. Everybody. Nobody's exempt from that. And then he goes on to prove it, as it is written, and he starts quoting from Psalm 14, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. How many are righteous? None, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is upon their lips." What's he doing here? If you're listening to this and you're a Jew, you're going, oh my gosh, that's me. Like I've heard this scripture read. You probably studied it when you were growing up if you're part of the Jewish tradition, but you might not have ever applied it personally. Friends, if you grew up in the church, I hope you've had experiences like this where something you heard taught to you or something you heard a pastor explain to you for years and years and years, it finally sunk in and you finally got it. And you finally heard something that was either really convicting or really challenging to you. When I was growing up, I was, this is weird, I know, but I was very comfortable with my identity as a sinner. Like, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the idea that I'm broken. I don't really need to fight that. That wasn't something I intellectually struggled with. What I struggled with was that I'm beloved. What I struggled with was that I belong, that I have a home in God's family. And over time, that has slowly started to come into play for me. But I think every one of us, especially if you grew up around church, there's that thing that God is really trying to drive home for you. And I'm hoping, praying, 
that we can be a people who increasingly hear what those things are and change our lives accordingly, ask God to change our lives accordingly. That's kind of the work that Paul is trying to do here with the Jews and the Gentiles in this church. Jews, listen, here's a list of all the things that you're not doing right. You know these scriptures. Can you see yourself in them? That's the image of a mirror. Can you see yourself in what the scriptures are saying? All of 9 through 18, if you want to just mark that in your Bible, 9 through 18 is those passages of the Old Testament that Paul's quoting to create the case of look at yourselves. Look at where you're missing the mark. Now, what do we do in contemporary culture with things like this? We hate it. We hate standing on the scale when you're trying to lose weight. We hate, you know, all these kinds of standards that we put up for ourselves and we fall short and we go, yeah, thanks a lot. I don't need to feel guilty again this morning. I really appreciate it. Well, do you care about change? Do you care about your life being different? Do you care about the things that God has put in front of you that he's saying, look, are you paying attention to this? Are you noticing this? Are you seeing this aspect of your character? And do you want to see just little turns away from that towards something new? If you're a Christ follower, yeah, you do. And even if you're not, you can own that there are things about yourself where you go, I don't like this about me. I still love the person that who I am, God has made me, and yet there are things that need to change. And he's offering these quotes from the Psalms and from other parts of the Old Testament to help the Jews and the Gentiles say, oh, wow, I got to change. I am worse off than I thought. Anybody feeling any cracks in the ice right now? If you're not feeling any cracks in the ice around you, if you're not feeling pressure, if you're feeling like, hey, I got it, I'm okay, I'm in a good season, here's what I want to encourage you to do with integrity. Go back and look at verses 9 through 18 and find yourself in those verses. Not to beat yourself up, not to ride the guilt train, none of that. To look at those places, hold up the mirror and say, if I look at myself honestly and clearly through the lens of Scripture, what are the things that God is prompting me to step into? What are the things that I could confess? What are the things that I'm just choosing to ignore, but scripture won't let me ignore? That's why scripture is our highest authority here at Bethany. We cannot ignore it. And it teaches us the way to life. A convicting verse for me in all of this is Romans 3.13, where it talks about exaggerating. The exact quote is, their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is on their lips. I don't know that I would call myself a venomous person. But I do know what it means to deceive. Because I'm like you guys. I work with people that I love and I care about. And I've been guilty of embellishing my work. Of saying, yeah, things are going great when they're not going great. Or we've got more people when we haven't had more people. Yes, it happens in pastor world too. So if you've ever embellished, if you've struggled with that guile, right? That using your words to kind of make yourself sound slicker or sharper. Make it look like you're bulletproof. You've got it all covered then you should be able to relate to Romans 3.13 and it should convict you and you should want to change. I want to change because I can see myself in these scriptures. My question is, can you? Can you see your face, your challenges, your struggles against the backdrop of this passage? And what steps could you take toward a new way or a different way or a different approach in the week ahead? The way forward is not through beating ourselves up. The way forward is through honesty. Through honesty. Through counting on God's assessment of me to make a new way forward for me. A tool that I would recommend, just a resource that a friend gave to me this week. This is just a slim little journal that has the book of Romans in it on one side. And then on the other side is just a place to write some notes. 
So if you want to pick up one of these, we don't have them here, but I had a friend give this to me this week. He knew I was studying Romans, said, hey, I want you to use this. I hope this is helpful. It was awesome for me. And it's been the place where I've kind of been able to hold myself up against the things that the passages are saying. Grab one. Let me know how that goes. I hope that it is a real encouragement to you. So that's part one where we're reflecting on our brokenness. Everybody hates having to do that, just like we hate going to the dentist or hate going to the doctor. Sorry if you're a dentist or if you're a doctor. It's true. But we need to talk about that first challenge before we can talk about the rest of the good stuff. So the first challenge, see our brokenness. Second thing that we're going to talk about is the path, the pathway forward through God's righteousness. This is a huge word all throughout the book of Romans. This will not be the only time we talk about righteousness. But what I want to frame righteousness as is it's a pathway forward. Paul uses this term a couple of different times. You heard it earlier when Stephen read this for us, but let me just remind us as we read it again. This is verse 21 and 22. But now, and he's saying but now because right before this, he's talking about how we've missed the mark. This is where he's been quoting the Old Testament. Nobody's going to make their life right on their own, but now. This is the sign of hope. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed. That's our path. It's available. It's attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What is the righteousness of God? It's one of the biggest themes in all of Romans. A commentator that I was reading this week said this, righteousness is just God's covenant faithfulness. It's God keeping his promises. What did we say earlier? God always keeps his promises. Can you say it again with me? God always keeps his promises. That's the righteousness of God. Whenever you read that from now on, when you're reading through Romans, God always keeps his promises. Let that be something that flashes into your mind. And what does this mean practically? Is that it's the way that God holds us up by keeping his promises. It's that we don't have to stand on the ice. We don't have to watch the cracks spread. We can count on him holding us up. We see this reflected all throughout the witness of Scripture. Anytime God makes a promise, God keeps the promise. He makes promises. He makes covenants with Noah. I will never again destroy the earth. He makes a promise to Abraham. You will be the father of many nations. He makes promises to Moses and to David. And guess who always winds up on the faithful side of the equation? God does. Human beings will mess stuff up. We'll miss the mark, but God will not. His faithfulness, his promises are what hold up those different heroes of the faith. It's not their own will. It's not their muster. It's not their personal spiritual might. It's that God's promises are true and he holds us up. Picture that image again of someone holding you up with their arms under you. They're stronger than you. They're bigger than you. They can do more than you ever could. He is holding up these great figures of the faith. And he keeps his promises, and he will do that for you and for me. Because God kept his promises, like he kept it to Abraham, all throughout the Bible, we can get off of the ice. Abraham was not someone who was especially gifted. He was not a special guy. We'll learn more about him next week in Romans 4. But he was someone that God said, I choose you to be the father of many nations. And he kept that promise through his son Isaac. He kept that promise when Abraham was told, go put Isaac on the altar. The promise was in crisis. How is this going to work out? And God holds Abraham up and guides him to the restoration of his son, provides for the sacrifice, takes care of him in ways that Abraham could never have imagined. That's what I'm talking about when I say promises are the things that hold us up. God's faithfulness holds us up. If you've been through a period of crisis in your life, you've leaned on something to hold you up. If you've lost your job, if you've been through a season of unemployment, 
if you've been through something awful with a kid, if you've had major transitions you weren't planning on, all of us rely on something to get us through those seasons. When I was 23, I was in a really, really dark season in my life. I was depressed. I was really struggling with anxiety and loneliness. I'd finished college, but I was just kind of a mess. And so I finally went to go see a counselor named Nancy. Nancy was amazing. She was a safe person for me to be around. I shared how much I felt lost, how I felt unloved and isolated. And she looked right at me and she said, Travis, God does not want you to carry these burdens anymore. He doesn't want you to do that anymore. And that was such a word for me because it was a word of freedom. It was a way forward. It was someone that I could feel safe with. But those are just nice words if they're not coupled with the truth. And what Nancy and others have guided me to since then, the way that promises have really held me up since those days when I was really struggling with depression, is to trust in those specific promises that are so meaningful in the moment to me. For example, if I struggle with loneliness, like back then, or if I do now, if my family goes out of town and I'm feeling lonely, the promise that I can lean on personally is these great words, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God has promised that to me, to you. I can receive that as a personal promise. I just can say it in my head. I can hear it. I can try to live into it. It is not a magic trick. It is naming a promise that God has made. And what do we know about God's promises? He always keeps them. If I'm facing loneliness, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I continue to struggle with anxiety. If I'm facing anxiety in a moment, what I've started to do lately is Matthew 11, these wonderful words from Jesus, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If I'm facing fear that gets put on repeat, which is how I define anxiety, oh, I don't know what's going to happen over here, or, oh, I'm failing at this, or there's too many things to try to catch, I'm just feeling overwhelmed. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, take my yoke upon you, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those are words that bring life to me, and they can bring life to you too. I'm not saying you need to adopt those promises for you. Maybe your struggles are different than mine. Maybe the, the pressure points for you are different. What I would encourage you to do is at the back table, right near the Bibles on your way out, we have a sheet that just lists all these wonderful promises from Scripture, all the things that God declares to be true about us and about his love for us. Grab one. Start reading through it. Put it up on your fridge. Find those two or three things on that sheet that really resonate with this season in your life. Whatever it is that you're facing, whatever pressures you're experiencing, find words of scripture that will be the truth that you need. More than just encouragement, more than just my counselor saying good words to me, I needed truth. And that was my pathway to it. And I hope that every one of us will grab one of those on our way out today. So that's brokenness. That's righteousness. Now we got to talk about another huge theological topic that I could spend a month talking about, but nobody wants to listen to me talk for a month. Justification. That's the last thing we'll talk about. So this is kind of a fun photo that I found. Are we going to put this up? Oh, yeah. We need a new identity. If your photo looks like this on your driver's license, you need a new identity. Like, this is not working for you. It's Mr. Bean. Anybody watch Mr. Bean? Okay, good. I'm not alone in the room. Justification, Mr. Bean's ugly driver's license photo. You'll thank me later. Trust me. What's the big deal about justification? It gives us a new identity. Martin Luther argued that it is the central message of the church. It's the thing that sets Christianity apart. Where do we see this? We see this in the most famous passages in chapter 3. 
listen to these. This is 23 and 24. That there is no distinction, right? God's just told, Jesus just told us about righteousness. There's no distinction. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification is a new identity. It is the way that God looks at us and he uses his power to give us a new identity, to set us free from the punishment of sin. And then he sets us up for a lifelong relationship with him where we're transformed. Power and relationship leading to transformation. That's what justification does. The way I would summarize this is God sets us free and then he sets us up. He sets us free and he sets us up. He sets us free from the punishment of sin. That's what Jesus took on. That's the atonement. And then he sets us up. You're being set up for something new. That's why I've been encouraging us. Go reflect on the scriptures. Go take a hard look. Take a ruthless moral inventory of where you're at. God is doing something in you and in me and in those kids to change us into the people that he longs for us to be. And I'm just trying to give us some pathways toward that today. That's that setup. That's that lifelong transformation that we are being given through Christ. Our freedom isn't just for us to enjoy. God's righteousness is not so he can just pat himself on the back. It is so he can provide for us what we can never provide for ourselves. A new way to freedom. A new way to approach work. A new way to approach parenting. If you're a student, a new way to engage with your studies. Where you know your identity does not come from your work. Go back to that guy we were talking about at the beginning. The guy that came up with the image of standing there on the ice. He had everything he wanted. He got the dream. But it led to so many challenges for him. If you are in that place, you are not alone. And the question that I would ask is, if you're standing on the ice, where are you counting on your freedom coming from? You want to just get off the ice? You want to go do something else? Okay, well, the ice is going to follow you. Are your kids experiencing that? Are you worried for them? The work of figuring out how we're supposed to live on the ice belongs to Jesus. The work belongs to Jesus. Say that with me, Bethany. The work belongs to Jesus. When you are on the ice this week, when you are watching the cracks come, when you are worried about your safety, your salvation, your kids, your work, whatever it is, remember this, say it again, the work belongs to Jesus. That's going to be our pathway in the week ahead. Where do we most often find ourselves worried about the cracks? That's where you need to rely on the identity God has given to you. That's where that justification piece needs to come right back into play. Wait, I'm tempted to stress out right now. I'm tempted to kind of pull into my little cave and protect myself. No, God is setting me up. He has set me free. He has set me up and the work belongs to Jesus. That is what he is calling me into when I go to work at Microsoft, when I go to work at Google, when I go to work at any of the other bazillion tech startups around here, when I go to work as a teacher, wherever you go, wherever you go, wherever you go, you are going where the work belongs to Jesus. There is no place on earth where he is not doing good work. And he wants you to be a part of that. In the week ahead, one of the things I want to do is when I start to feel overwhelmed, which is often, I want to try to use these words. The work belongs to Jesus. When I feel like, oh, we don't have enough people to do this, and we're struggling with this, or I don't know what our vision is over here, and I got another million emails to answer, oh my gosh, the work belongs to Jesus. The work belongs to him. It must belong to him. I have to trust him with that work because otherwise I make it about me. 
and I'll get trapped on the ice. Will you? When you feel like you're on the ice this week, what are you going to do? Remind yourself, the work belongs to Jesus. I have been justified, given freedom by the Most High God and King. He treasures you. He calls you beloved. And will you live into that this week? Will you own that? Will you step into it with courage? I believe we can. Would you join me in prayer? Thank you, God, that the work belongs to you. Our understanding is limited. These huge topics of justification and righteousness and sin and all these things, it can be so hard to just get our heads around. Instead of thinking, I got to go figure this out, may we instead turn to you in trust and in love. Maybe the place that you're desiring to do deep work within us is with a counselor, is with someone who can help guide us through our struggles and our fears and being on the ice. If so, help us to take that first step and reach out. Ask for help. If we're looking for a new community, a place to belong, a place where we can be known and loved, would you do that work in us, Jesus, and give us the courage for the first step? If we need to seek reconciliation with a friend or a relative or a coworker, May we be those who trust you through your power, through your promise keeping to hold us up, to protect us, to give us a pathway forward and to see that you are driving us toward an amazing future. Thank you for setting us up for great transformation that only you could bring. Thank you for being faithful. As we rise once again to sing and unite our voices, would you be glorified in these moments together in worship? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.